ทสาบุพวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสังนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสังนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสังพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสังเพราะฉะนั้นการแสดงความรู้สึกของคนที่มีอายุมากขึ้นในประเทศเราเป็นสิ่งที่ทุกคนต้องทำเพื่อแสดงความรู้สึกของตนเองและสร้างความสุขให้กับคนที่มีอายุมากขึ้นในประเทศเราเป็นสิ่งที่ทุกคนต้องทำเพื่อแสดงความรู้สึกของตนเองและสร้างความสุขให้กับคนที่มีอายุมากขึ้นในประเทศเราเป็นสิ่งที่Invited to visit a Buddhist center in Cumbria, it was in those days at least called the Manjushri Institute. I don't know what it's called these days, but he had been invited to give teachings there, which he did. And as I recall, what I was told that the uh, lay students there asked Ajahn Chah if he would give them the teachings on Vipassana, uh, the Insight Meditation teachings, and. This is like um, around 30 years ago now, uh, maybe even more, and it was the time when Vipassana was just uh, beginning to become well known and starting to be cool. And uh, so the thing to do was to get the initiation from this great master into Vipassana. So Ajahn Chah said, "Oh yes, no problem. If you all come tomorrow morning, I'll give you the teachings." I think it was before he, before he left. He said, "Come in the morning, and and everybody should bring a flower with them." And so, this photograph was taken at the time. I believe he was standing on the steps at the front of Manjushri Institute, and holding up his flower. And he said, "Vipassana, or the cultivation of insight, means looking at this flower and watching it die." And then. Had produced this beautiful, serene smile on his face, and and somebody went click. I think it was a Tibetan nun called Tupten Yeshi, actually, and we're very grateful she captured the moment. Of course, more important than the the beautiful image um, of Ajahn Chah smiling and holding a flower up, more beautiful than that is an understanding of what he was pointing towards. Which is the insight which leads to equanimity. And so this evening, if I may, I'd like to speak for a few minutes about this, this virtue, this um, force for transformation. I, I think in Buddhism we have the in Theravada Buddhism we have the list of the ten parami: dana, sila, nikkama, aditana, panya, satcha, the uh, generosity, integrity. Renunciation, uh, determination, wisdom—such as the ten virtues. I think it's uh, 
important, I would suggest, to to see these as not just as good things to do if you're a good person, and that's a little bit of a, an initial bit of understanding, but rather to see them as as forces that contribute to the process of transformation. We have all this stuff, we have all this wild energy within us which expresses itself as greed and anger and impatience and disappointment and sadness and frustration and so on. Uh, we're not talking about getting rid of it. We're, that's that's uh, probably not a very helpful approach, almost definitely not a helpful approach, but how to transform this into something that is alive and beautiful and truly beneficial to oneself and others. Because certainly if you meet realized beings, you don't see them as like dead things sitting there full of energy, full of aliveness, full of vitality and care and concern and engagement. So how do we transform what we've got, the raw material of this wild energy into something that is profoundly beautiful and truly beneficial? Well, the Buddha indicated these, what he called the ten paramis or ten virtues, uh, contribute to this process of transformation and it's interesting to note that the last one on the list is equanimity. So maybe that's because it's most difficult. Certainly I should say from the outset that uh, my relationship with this virtue is minimal. Uh, I, I, I fall way short of uh, where I would like to be, way, way short of where I'd like to be with regards to having equanimity developed. Uh, it's also uh, referred to in other occasions, like in the uh, Seven Factors of Enlightenment, and the, uh, the mindfulness and investigation of Dhamma and, and bliss and energy and all the other qualities. But then at the very end, it talks about equanimity, the four divine abidings, uh, the four Brahma Viharas. The last one is, again, Upeka, equanimity. So whether it comes last because it's most difficult or not, I don't know, but it's there. I think that's the main thing uh, to recognize that this quality of equanimity is something the Buddha definitely praised. And surely all of us in our lives uh, recognize that if we don't have it, uh, life is just very exhausting. And the, the ups and downs that can be so so tiresome, tiresome and it seems like you know humanity um, has we've used our intelligence we've used our prosperity to not necessarily take us to a place of contentment because I don't know how much contentment there is around when you look around the planet definitely there's much more food than there's ever been before there's much more medical ability than there's ever been before. There's much more knowledge and skill about dealing with, with conventional human suffering than there's ever been before. Uh, talking here about the, the pharmaceutical medication and psychotherapeutic skills. And, uh, however, although there's much more of all of that, I, I don't think any of us would say there's much more contentment. And so where are we going off? We're going off somewhere. Certainly, uh, and I would say that it's in this the lack of wisdom, the lack of a wise perspective on what really matters. Yeah, we, 
if we don't have wisdom, then we we fall prey to the way things appear to be. You know, I mean, it's obvious. Like children, you give them something sweet, and they just want something more. They want more of it. Even adults, something sweet, we generally tend to want more. But if there's some some sense of discernment operating, so yeah, I really, really, really do want more of that. But I know enough about the the fructose corn syrup that they've put in there that actually gets processed in the liver and turns into fat very quickly and makes you feel like that uh, you haven't eaten anything and, and just makes you addicted to their sugar-enriched products. And so with that information, with that understanding, with that wise perspective, we're able to override our impulses. And so hopefully we learn to not eat the junk that's got high fructose corn syrup in it. But uh, children who don't have that perspective, well, they don't know. They just react. You know, likewise, animals, you know, just, they just react. And a whale will see a bunch of nice-looking things out there and just open its mouth and consume, you know, 20 tons of plastic bags. And that's really unfortunate. Uh, unfortunately, the whale didn't have the discernment. We do. You know, human beings, we can look and say, oh, actually, that's plastic. You don't eat that stuff. That's not good for you. So I would say that it's the lack of wisdom, the lack of wise perspective on our experience, which means that we have used our intelligence to just give ourselves treats rather than to give ourselves contentment. And so it, it seems to me that, uh, that in the uh, developed world anyway, we're all treat chunkies. Uh, I can... I was, uh, I was remembering there during the meditation when I was young and, and we would occasionally get treats like, you know, once a week maybe we could sit in front of the telly with, instead of having to have the table, sit at the table and, and have the meal, we could go and sit in front of the telly with Welsh Rabbit and watch Bonanza or something. And that was a, a real treat. I don't know, once a, a week, maybe once a month, something, you know, really lucky. Well, compared to what goes on these days, I mean, do kids ever sit at the table with the family, have the meal? And most of them have probably got telly and internet in their rooms. And now I'm not just making a moral judgment on this, I'm just saying that this continual bombardment of, of gratification, of treats, always giving ourselves treats. You know. And so this impression that uh, we have, and children grow up with these days, uh, lends itself to a kind of consciousness which makes us believe like we're entitled to be feeling happy all the time, to be getting what we want, because that's what a treat's about, isn't it? A treat is what makes us happy. And the moment, instant gratification makes us happy. And so we want another treat of some sort. And, and so we have this consciousness, which I would suggest more than ever before throughout all of human history, really, we feel justified in getting happiness. And yet is happiness really... Uh, is striving for happiness really wise? Is striving for happiness really wise? Because no matter how much happiness we've had, you know, we all die. <laughs> we all die. And however much happiness we've had with our friends and family, they all die. And then when they die, what good has the happiness done us? Uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who, who was saying, well, I think I've got a short shelf life. I don't know how long I'm going to live. And uh, I said, well, that's not very nice. He says, well, don't worry. You've got lots of nice, happy memories. And, well, I suppose that's a positive way of looking at it. 
But I think there's more to life than just accumulating uh, happy memories if alongside of that we're going to end up with a lot of unhappy memories and despair. So this is what uh, I think equanimity addresses. Equanimity is that capacity to relate to life so that there's, a, there's an evenness there's an evenness there, which means we can go through the ups and the downs without getting lost in it. Yes, there can be the joy and the delight and the gladness and happiness. And yes, there can be the sadness, the sorrow and the disappointment and the frustration and the despair, but we don't get lost in either. So I would say that that's what equanimity is alluding to, is referring to the need for that even-heartedness, even-mindedness. So in a minute I'll, I'll talk about what happens when we misjudge what's meant by it and get it wrong. But first, I'd like to perhaps to say something about how we might cultivate this quality. Because if we begin by, by getting the message that, yeah, this is a good idea, yeah, actually I need equanimity. I don't just need to get my samadhi when I want it and then feel pleased with myself and then have to put up with and endure a confused, miserable mind when I haven't got any samadhi. Yeah, what I really need is some equanimity, which means that whether I'm getting samadhi or not getting samadhi, you know, whether the weather is wonderful or weather's not wonderful, whether England's going to really win the football or not win the football. I mean, who thought this one was coming? I mean, we didn't see this one coming, did we? Yeah. All these treats that we give ourselves, we recognize that we need to have some sort of even-mindedness through there. Because if we don't do it for ourselves, well, we're going to get knocked out by it. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that... We were getting all, all uh, hyped up over the Jubilee and, uh, and, and all the excitement and enthusiasm about that. And then that one fades away and, and now there's the hype moving up. In fact, I think just today the uh, Olympic torch passed just a few miles from here, apparently, going from Annick to Gateshead. And I think maybe tonight it's spending its night near the Angel of North or something nice like that. So uh, the building, the, the, uh, the enthusiasm and delight around the Olympics and then there's this, as I said, this unexpected thing about the, the English football team getting further in Europe than anybody expected and, and so now people are getting excited about that and, and maybe there's, there's Wimbledon and Andy Murray and we're going to get excited about that. All this temptation for excitement and enthusiasm which is really pushed at us, if we don't prepare ourselves, if we don't defend ourselves with this this quality of heart, this quality, this, this frequency of consciousness. Or if one was to use a biological or a medical model, you say it's like, a, you know, like the vitamins that the medical folk have identified. You, know, you don't need too much of this or that little vitamin, you know, but if you don't have it, then your immune system is down and you're susceptible to invasion by disease. So uh, a lot of people not getting enough vitamin D apparently these days, putting on too much sunscreen or, or for whatever other reason they're not getting vitamin D. And so, so now they're pumping everybody full of vitamin D and hoping it's going to fix the condition. Well, whether that's medically sound advice or not, I don't know. But uh, certainly on the spiritual level, if we don't protect ourselves by cultivating this capacity of consciousness, area referred to by or equanimity, then we're vulnerable, we're susceptible uh, to infection, disease, and getting lost in joy and getting lost in sorrow. So how do we cultivate it? So that little 
spiel to encourage us to think about it. So how do we cultivate it? Well, I think one of the things that is um, it's useful is is to find people who've got it and to 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 really enjoy the observation. Yeah? So that photo of Ajahn Chah, I want people to know what he was saying when he's holding up that flower. He didn't look depressed. He looked radiant. It was the radiance of serenity. It was a serene heart that came with the understanding that this is the way of things. This is the nature of things. You know, practicing Dhamma, cultivating Dhamma is studying the way things are. Developing vipassana, insight meditation, is applying attention in the direction of investigation that leads us to seeing the way things are. Birth, aging, sickness and death is the way things are. But because we're not at one with the way things are, then we get lost in all sorts of deluded ideas about the way things are and then we get seriously disappointed and upset. Well, the Buddha, out of kindness and wisdom, wanted to protect us from getting lost and, and all of that, so he gave these pointers. And likewise, the great teachers have given us these pointers. Ajahn Chah giving that rather direct, unsubtle teaching. It's worth reflecting on. Not just to think of, oh, how sad that that beautiful magnolia flower dies, but to look at our relationship to sadness and say, well, what's really sad is our relationship to sadness. That we get lost in sad. I mean, what's more natural than feeling sad when you lose something that somebody that you love? Of course, we feel sad, but you know it's totally natural. So, you know, why do we have to get defined by that forever, as if like I'm never going to be happy ever again? Why does sadness have to become depression? Or what's more natural than joy and delight and happiness when you see something truly beautiful, something? something really gorgeous and you're listening to some exquisite, wonderfully played music and of course this pleasure comes. That's the most natural thing. But what's really sad is that we get lost in that joy and pleasure and that when it passes we feel disappointed and sad. So with this equanimity then it's not saying there isn't joy and there isn't sorrow but that there's this even-heartedness, this even-mindedness, which means that somehow we can sustain wise reflection, we can sustain our attentions through that. And the ways of cultivating it, one would be to look at our teachers. You look at uh, the photographs of, of many of our teachers in Thailand, and most of them have got a pretty sour look on their face. And sometimes Westerners get confused by that, well, they're a grumpy bunch of depressed old so-and-sos. What's their problem? So, well, traditionally, Buddhist societies have within them the wisdom that, that knows happiness is not a goal to run after. It's not wise to be running after happiness because conventional happiness just, is just contrasted to conventional unhappiness. What's a goal really worth moving towards or cultivating is the wisdom that sees beyond happiness and unhappiness, in what the, the Buddha called the middle way. And in the first chapter of the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah, which have recently been uh, republished, and any of you that don't have a copy, please do go into the reception room or, or find yourself a copy and, and take it home. And, and very worth reading these wonderful translated 
transcribed teachings of Ajahn Chah. There's a saying in the first chapter, I think it's called The Middle Way Within, he, he talks about it. happiness is one extreme, unhappiness is the other extreme. And between that is knowing happiness and unhappiness, which he called the middle way. The first, whatever, 29 years of his life, he really worked on, the Buddha really worked on developing happiness. Succeeded at everything, every task. Got himself educated, had a lot of experience, great at archery, got himself a nice-looking wife, and and so on. But that didn't work. He, He got unhappy and fell into despair. And so then he flipped to the other extreme of, underwent all sorts of austerities and pain and misery and there's the conventional religious model of the time that somehow enduring all this pain was going to be good for you but in his case it didn't work either but based on the accumulated virtue of many lifetimes of aspiring towards liberation and freedom from suffering for the benefit of all beings that accumulation of the transformative powers came together and in that particular predicament he arrived at the realisation of the insight of the Four Noble Truths which was the the giving rise to the insight and the equanimity from which he later taught and that is the the middle way and so the uh, looking at our teachers and if they look a bit grumpy well the reason that we make a problem out of that is because we're we're treat freaks you know, we're just so busy always having to be happy. In fact, I seem to recall that that um, somebody asked Ajahn Chah once, I'm not sure about the story, but it's a good enough story anyway, even if it's not exactly true. I think a Thai person asked Ajahn Chah, how come you've got this photo of you being spread around with your mouth wide open laughing? Because to the Thais, this was a very strange thing. I think actually it was a Jesuit priest who was visiting and took a photograph of Ajahn Chah uh, when he was laughing and his mouth wide open and Thais would normally never print a photo like that they consider it virtuous to print a photo of a monk looking very composed and, and sober and Ajahn Chah said oh well you know you've got to be like that for westerners because you know they're so miserable that if you don't if you're not looking happy they won't listen to you and so whether that's exactly true or not, I don't know. But I think something like that he's said on other occasions as well. So it, it's quite likely to be true. That, uh, yeah, he was willing to play the role of being a happy guy just so that we would listen to him. But once we listened to him, he would say, listen, don't believe in happiness. This is not a safe goal. You know, if we get lost in happiness, we're going to get lost in unhappiness. It's not that happiness is not fun. You know, happiness is fun. There's no question about that. What's a problem is when we get lost in it. If there's no equanimity, if there's no wise perspective, we'll make a problem out of even happiness, not to mention making a problem out of unhappiness. So I would recommend reading that first chapter in the Collected Teachings of Ajahn Chah where he, he does explain that very thoroughly. So looking at teachers like Ajahn Chah or other people who you might sense have equanimity and and in this regard, I would uh, I'd be so bold as to say that our Queen, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, is a, a very good example. Somebody was asking me the other day, did you catch any of the Jubilee celebration? I said, yes, I did. And I, I commented, I said, I was very inspired. And I said, what were you inspired by? And 
I said, well, I was inspired by the, Her Majesty's equanimity. Now, putting to one side whether you agree or disagree or like or dislike monarchy and, and all the uh, concerns and questions that, that uh, come with that, that question, just think for a minute, how many people do we know or how many people can we observe in the world who have been in such a position of power for 60 years and on an occasion like that where they have a whole nation, well not a whole nation, but the large majority of them, uh, turning to them and projecting all this energy out towards them and they can stay even-minded. Now how many people can do that? How many people have not lost the plot once they've been on the receiving end of all this projection? Of course you can look back and at our favourite musicians, you know, Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Mama Cass, you know, Jim Morrison. Yeah. Most of them didn't even reach 30. You know, not even 10 years of, of adoration uh, from a few hundred thousand people. Well, I think there's a reason for that. Some people would say, oh, well, Her Majesty, she got brought up in a way whereby you know, she was just trained to be immune to that stuff. And, well, that may be the answer, but I think there's another answer, and I think that is that she considers her role as the monarch of the country as a spiritual task. In other words, she has a, a, a sincere spiritual dimension to her life, that during the coronation, when there was the anointment uh, of, of her as the monarch, uh, she took it very literally, very seriously. And as such, what she's done is she's protected her ego from taking personally all this adoration. And that's, if one understands a little bit about psychology, then you know, there are those around who explain these things quite usefully and the dynamics of, of what happens to the ego. If, it, if we think the buck stops with me, then we take all this energy that people direct us personally and we feed on it, we get inflated, we get all puffed up. And then the next thing you know, it's like taking drugs and, and carrying on and so on to deal with this intolerable, intolerable level of energy. The ego structure is actually a pretty puny, pathetic thing. It's not designed to take all that energy. So in traditional wisdom, there are structures in place whereby when somebody is on the receiving end of all of that energy, all that projection from people, there's a way of deflecting it. And common and garden variety religion does this for people, I feel. Uh, and I would suggest that this is, in fact, one of the things that has protected uh, Her Majesty from taking all this personally. And she's been able, generally speaking, to maintain this level of, of I would think, equanimity throughout. And I think it's a very good example. A lot of people don't know why they love her. I think that's one reason why they love her because they, they pick this up, they intuit this. You can see she's not taking it personally. Yeah, and that is a true virtue. That's, that's something really worthy of respect. Now, it's not that I'm necessarily praising Her Majesty's relationship to the Christian faith or any aspect of the Christian faith. Um, but even any conventional religion, to some degree, can do this. And... Some weeks ago, I was taking a train trip down to London and I was sitting in the waiting room in Newcastle and I waiting for my train and looking around and I saw all these miserable, kind of grumpy-looking people. 
And they weren't like contented grumpy. They were really sour grumpy, kind of bitter grumpy. And I don't know, they all looked very well fed and and the room was warm and they didn't look like they were hard up or poor or anything. Uh, and yet they really, they looked, you know, their faces looked dull and their eyes looked dull and, you know, that's a pretty sad situation. You know, here we are in this nice warm waiting room going on a trip somewhere and they, they probably already had a nice coffee from Costa's or something and, and they're still looking miserable. And, and then in contrast, later on in the day I was on a tube in London and just sitting opposite was was a uh, an Asian couple, uh, Indian maybe. I assumed they were Hindu-looking people, and the woman in a sari. They were probably in their mid sixties, mid to late sixties, or something, and and um, more or less the same sort of class of society as these people I saw in Newcastle, and and yet there was a radiance about them. There was just a conventional contentment. They were just sitting there on the tube. In the tube was a stinky kind of place, as it is, always is, and and it was busy. But there was a contentment, there was an ease there. And now it could be romantic projection on my part, but uh, I'm not convinced by that. I think that I suspect that this uh, Indian couple did have some sort of conventional religious practice going, which, as with the Queen, had a way of, that what the, what the, what religion is designed to do is to protect our heart from falling into the delusion that all this stuff that passes through us is me. It stops us from taking me so seriously. This is the point of all religion, all true religion, is to relativize the ego. So the ego is not who and what I really am. And so in our contemplation on equanimity, I think this is a, a valid way of thinking about it, that if we don't have equanimity then we are, we are vulnerable to this. Praise, blame, gain, loss, pleasure, suffering, honour and insignificance, the, the eight worldly dhammas, the eight worldly winds that we're blown around by all the time. If we don't have equanimity, if our ego is not protected from the delusion that this is really me that is getting praised, this is really me that is getting blamed, this is really me that's successful. I am absolutely successful and I'm going to be more successful. If we don't have anything that protects us from that, well then when we're not successful, we're not going to be protected from the feeling of it's really me that's failed and this economic downturn, it's really my fault and I'm hopeless. And we'll get, sadly you get pulled into that. So looking at people around, um, another person I would suggest is uh, Aung San Suu Kyi at the moment, thankfully. She's now free to leave her country, and uh, I didn't see her speech to to uh, the Nobel Peace Prize people in, in uh, Norway today, but uh, maybe some of you did, and I imagine that all those years under house arrest, she's probably developed a pretty good sense of equanimity. You know, I don't know, maybe she... She hasn't had all the experience that she needs to translate the inner skills into outer skills. I expect it's probably quite difficult for her after all those years of, of relative uh, solitude to be confronted with all this projection of people. And maybe if she gets to meet Her Majesty the Queen, she can learn some lessons. But uh, anyway, finding people who you feel have got this and delighting it, you know, recognizing it, saying, oh, yeah, that is beautiful. You know, not saying, oh, why aren't those monks smiling or, 
or whatever, you just say, well, to look for, to feel for a quality beyond that, beyond happiness and unhappiness, and sense the, for the serenity that's expressed in Ajahn Chah's smile in that photo. So then another aspect of this, which um, we, I think is worth considering, is the skills that are used for informal contemplation, like we, we did just earlier, the contemplating the four Brahma Viharas, may I abide in well-being, may all beings abide in well-being, may all beings be free from suffering, may all beings not be parted from the goodness they've attained, whatever action I shall do for good or for ill, of that I'll be, I will receive the consequences. So this contemplation on loving-kindness, on compassion, on joyous empathy, you know, the capacity for empathy in the context of joy. Yeah. Also, equanimity. Uh, so here is the encouragement to, to feed into our thinking the law, intentional consideration of the law of karma. So the heartful qualities of, of love, of of compassion, of caring with those in the context of suffering, of, of empathetic joy, of, of empathizing with those in the context of joy, of happiness. All that heartfulness, that beauty, that, that nice stuff, yes, absolutely. Uh, essential that we feed that, that we quicken that, that we bring that alive. Within us. However, the Buddha is putting it right in there in the same package, this equanimity is that even if all our well-wishing, all our love, all our caring uh, you know, with, is there, even if all of that fails and the outcome is, is disappointment, is misery, is loss, then still not to get lost in that, to not fall for the way it can appear. You know, because when we're disappointed, the way it appears is, you know, this is interminable. This is, it's always going to be this way. Yeah, I gave the example earlier. Yeah. For children, they eat something sweet, and the way it appears is, oh, this is good, I'll have more. But if we have some discernment, we realize, no, just because it appears good doesn't mean to say it is good. Just because something appears bad doesn't mean to say it is bad. Yeah. All the renunciation practices we take on, yeah. you know, those of us who live in the monastery, but also householders, you know, hopefully... You're, Cultivating the ability to, from time to time, say no to yourself. Not just because you think, you know, you've got to deny yourself happiness, but because you've thought about it and you recognize that if we can't say no to ourselves, then we lack the confidence. If we can't say no to ourselves on the area of, like, having whatever we want when we want, then we're going to lack the inner confidence that we can say no to unwholesome tendencies within you know, spiteful thoughts that we might have or, or covetous thoughts we might have or resentful, bitter thoughts we might have. We need to be able to say no to them, not no to deny them or push them out of awareness. That is a complete misunderstanding of the Buddha's teachings. I read an article recently on some news comment that somebody, I think, in Switzerland or Germany, some now exporters, was putting out an article that said that the Dalai Lama and Buddhism is brainwashing us into into not dealing with stuff. That is not that's not what the Buddhist teaching is about at all. We're not talking about not feeling spiteful impulses. We're not talking about denying and pushing away the covetous thoughts. 
But we do need to say no to them when they're going to invade us and take us over. If we can't say no to them, then we're victims. But we've allowed ourselves to become victims. So we need to be able to say no to a lot of this stuff. And one of the ways of doing that is cultivating the practices on the outside of you. You know, once a month, you know, to say no to Radio 4 or say no to that second cup of coffee or, you know, or whatever it is, you know, so that we know that this psychic muscle is alive and, and going to work for us when we need to call on it. So uh, using this contemplation on the uh, law of karma uh, so that... Uh, we see that when we are, when we do encounter disappointment, despair, apparent failure, we don't fall for the way it appears. Yes, it appears like this is hopeless. It really appears like I've made an intolerable mess of this and I should top myself. It might appear like that, but we don't believe it. Absolutely don't believe it. Yeah, it really appears like that. You know, just with cheesecake, <laughs> absolutely. You know, cheesecake, absolutely no question about it. It really appears like I should eat it. But what happens when I eat it? You know, 20, 30 minutes later, I feel disgusting. (laughs) It's not good for me. So that's the way it appears. And so with equanimity, we can withhold, restrain our assumptions about reality until we come in tune with reality. And so the formal contemplation on the law of karma, I am the owner of my karma, all beings the owner of their karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. All beings the owner of the karma, born of the karma, related to the karma, abide supported by the karma, whatever karma they will do for good or for ill, of that they will be the heir. As a, as a formal contemplation, this is a, something that is, uh, I think, worth encouraging. Also, what is worth encouraging is that is to be careful when we think we're cultivating equanimity but we get it wrong. So sometimes we can be looking at other people and somebody is trying to be equanimous but actually they're just being heartless. And you come across this not just in the Buddhist world but in the whole New Age world where somebody is sick and suffering and uh, they just say, oh, it's their karma. It's kind of a dismissive way. Oh, it's their karma, you know. So how do you know it's their karma? I, certainly the Buddha didn't teach that all sickness or accident or pain is caused by karma. Karma is one of a number of causes for sickness and for pain. You know. yeah. We don't know that this has been caused by karma. It's a very uncompassionate thing to do, actually, when somebody's sick, just to say, oh, well, it's their karma. We don't know that at all. So this is... Um, there's this risk with equanimity. We might think that we're developing uh, equipoise or even-mindedness and, and grasping the Buddha's teachings in the wrong way and holding on to this concept of the law of karma and think that this is equanimity when, in fact, it's just cold-heartedness. Okay? So these qualities of, of yes, even-mindedness, cool-heartedness, yes, but it needs to be balanced with it's essential that it's balanced with the warm-heartedness of loving-kindness, of compassion, of uh, equanimity, uh, 
uh, empathetic joy. And so if these qualities have been cultivated, then, and this is, I think, a good way that we can, we can assess teachings when we listen to them. You know, how do you judge whether a spiritual teacher is worth listening to or not? Well, I think paying attention to whether you think they've, they've at least got a respect for the principle of equanimity. And this is something we can look at. When it comes to praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and suffering, honour and insignificance, as I said, the, the eight worldly dhammas, you know, when teachers are blown around by these things, how do they relate to them? Are they really feeding on praise, feeding on success, feeding on pleasure, feeding on these, these, these uh, energies that even the Buddha was blown by these things, but the Buddha wasn't moved by it. The Buddha felt it. He knew it. He understood it, but he wasn't blown over by it. In the uh, Mahamangala Sutta, the discourse on great blessings, which many of you will have, all of you, I expect, will have heard us chant, from time to time, the Buddha goes through all these wholesome conduct of body and speech and wholesome states of mind, and each stanza, each verse he ends with, this is the greatest blessing. And then towards the end, the second to last verse, he says this, Puttasa loka dhammehi, chittang yasang makampati, asokang virajang kiamang, etang manglamutamang. Puttasa loka dhammehi, which means, even though you're blown around by these worldly winds, by these worldly dhammas, praise and blame, gain and loss, pujang, all of these things, even though you're blown around by them, jittang yasang nakampati. That jitta, that heart, is nakampati, which means it's not shaken. Yeah. This is talking about, this is the stanza, this is the verse following the Four Noble Truths, which is the greatest blessing is to understand the Four Noble Truths, is to be willing to look at suffering when it arises, to look at your flower that is dying, and to understand it, to not turn away from it, not pretend it's not happening. This is life. This is not something going wrong. So this is the greatest blessing, is to contemplate the Four Noble Truths. And if the Four Noble Truths are understood, then puttasa loka dhammi, even though, when the, when the Four Noble Truths are understood, even though you, you are impacted by praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and suffering, honour and insignificance, that jitta, that consciousness, that heart, will remain secure, nakampati, asokang wirajang kemang, griefless, dustless, secure. I hope we got the translation right there. Etang mangala mutamang. This is the greatest blessing. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamaya.